This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, Joseph Ellis, about his new and very fine book, Because, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773-1783. Your book, Joe, raises the questions about liberty, equality, and democracy that are these days rioting in the streets storming the media barricades with loud and violent discontent. Maybe you can begin by telling us what you mean by saying that the American Revolution succeeded because it was not really a revolution. What I guess I mean by that, Lewis, is that the American Revolution was a war for colonial independence, the first of its kind, in that sense, an unprecedented event, that had a revolutionary agenda. Unlike the French Revolution, which attempted to impose its revolutionary agenda immediately and thereby self-destructed and led to Napoleon, the American Revolution was led by prudent revolutionaries, if that's a contradiction in terms, but the prominent founders that we all know so well, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, uh, Patrick Henry, they were not intellectuals and philosophers in the French tradition. They were statesmen and lawyers and practical politicians. And they deferred the full implications of the revolutionary agenda. The immediate implication would be the abolition of the property requirement to vote. After that, the beginning of uh, the recognition that women... Uh, should have equal rights as citizens. But the biggie, the one that is controversial today in our debates, they preferred, they chose to defer a direct frontal attack on slavery, even though the values of the cause and of the American Revolution were clearly, and I mean clearly, incompatible with uh, child slavery. And they all recognized that all the prominent founders did, including all the slave owners. But to directly address it was to risk the union and to risk the kind of coherent uh, united front they needed to have to win the war. And later on in the Constitutional Convention, which I don't take up here, uh, they're going to have to do the same thing. And in that sense, if you believe that justice deferred or justice delayed is justice denied, you can be super critical In my judgment, it was a brilliant decision by them, and a failure will come later, not during the 1770s, but later, um, when they lose the opportunity to end slavery before the the values of the revolution uh, die as embers. At any rate, the American Revolution, the French Revolution is the most famous revolution in the world, and respected and revered by radicals abroad and all in the United States, but it's, it failed. The American Revolution succeeded, at least in terms of achieving its immediate object of independence, and it's now being uh, criticized heavily by many members of the historic profession, my fellow historians, because it didn't deliver on the full promise um, of 1776. 
What do you mean when you say that, you know, you quote John Adams saying that the making the American independence happen was the credit belonged to George III, that George III was the man that... Forced it to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that what he's saying, and I agree with him here, uh, is that the British Empire was stepping onto the world as the dominant world power, having just won the French and Indian War and acquired this huge new third of a continent, brimming over with confidence, sure of its own military and economic supremacy. And George III was the symbol and the official monarchical head of that new uh, world power. Um, And that the conflict that develops in the 1760s and early 70s is a political uh, argument about whether or not you can allow these colonies to continue to practice much what they had been doing for over 100 years, pretty much governing themselves. The British decide they have to consolidate their empire to control it more fully. And this should be familiar to uh, many Americans. We can, I think, begin to understand the British decision and the British dilemma here. The British essentially assured of their omnipotence, believing that nothing can really stop them, that they can't lose. They step into what turns out to be a quagmire and what turns out in the long run to be an unwinnable war, but the war was unnecessary. It was entirely possible for a negotiated settlement to occur. And note, there's about a 15-month difference between the time the war breaks out at Lexington and Concord in April of 75 and when we declare independence in July of 76. Throughout that time, the Americans are attempting to avoid war. Perhaps one of the most uh, unremembered sentences in Thomas Jefferson's language of the Declaration. We all know the words, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. But here he said um, that prudence dictates that governments established for long long, long and established reasons should not be overthrown uh, for light and transient causes. He's giving the great, giving Britain the opportunity to avoid stepping into this quagmire. But it's George III, more than any other single minister in his cabinet or a member of parliament, who is insistent on prosecuting the war. And then during the war, continuing it, even after the French come in, and it's pretty clear there's there's no possible way they're going to win it. Adams would like, you know, everybody, when they ask Adams, who's most responsible for the American Revolution, everybody thought Adams would say, well, I was. <laughs> and yeah. so he enjoyed being able to tell him George III. What is the olive branch? I mean, aren't the, mm-hmm. these are attempts by the Americans uh, during the period between Concord and, and the signing of the Declaration to, to do as you suggest, to, to try to make an accommodation. I mean, is that the, the idea that Frank Franklin had that idea, right? You're asking what forms of prudence were being displayed by the Americans during the interval between 75 and 76, right. yeah. attempting to avoid the war. And it goes back to what, I mean, what they are essentially saying is that, look, you've been imposing a new set of uh, parliamentary laws on us since 1763. You need to stop doing that. 
let's just go back to the way it was. And the way it was would, if allowed to continue, create what Franklin predicted much earlier in 1751, based on his assessment of the growth of population in both the colonies and in England, where the colonies were doubling, uh, were, were growing twice as fast in population as the British Isles. In effect, there need to be shared sovereignty between the mother country and the colonies. Um, and that is an early vision of what will, in the middle of the 20th, of the 19th century, become the preferred choice for British uh, rulers. Let allow them to have their own political independence, but retain them within the British Empire economically. Um, that option was put on the table by the Americans in a, a pamphlet called uh, that, uh, uh, that I think Jefferson himself wrote um, that specifically called itself the Olive Branch Petition. It was outright rejected by the British. In fact, George III said, I won't read it. Um, and therefore, the opportunity to avoid the war was present Later in the war, once it becomes clear that this is not going to turn out the way they had expected, uh, the British ministry and George III himself sends a commission over called the Carlisle Commission in 1778, and they offer the Americans everything that they had said they had earlier rejected. Uh, yes, you can retain your own political sovereignty. We'll even recognize the Continental Congress. Um, just stay in the empire and, and abide by the Navigation Acts. But by then, it was too late. Too many men had been killed. Too many women had been raped. Too many American towns had been burned to the ground. Uh, the suffering was, the opportunity had been missed. But at any rate, I think that the prudence of the revolutionaries is, is explainable in terms of how resistant they were to committing to independence unless they were forced to do so. Um, and in the end, the, re the forcing takes the form in the summer of 76, the same time as they're meeting to decide on independence, they're in the process of being invaded by the largest amphibious force ever to cross the Atlantic, 42,000 troops and sailors to, uh, as they say, to come and conquer us and kill us and rape us. And that was the mentality in the summer of 76, that they could say, we did everything humanly possible to avoid this conflict. Right, so that the British Navy under Admiral Richard Howe and the British Army under his brother uh, Howe, William, I think, is in Brooklyn, right? I mean, and, and the, uh, at the same time that the declaration is being written in Philadelphia. George Washington brings the Continental Army, it's only about 10,000 troops, down from Boston to New York to defend New York because they know that's where the British are going to invade and presumably then move up to Hudson and sever New England off from the rest of the colonies. That's the, that's the plan, the British strategy. Um, in retrospect, which means hindsight wisdom of the historian, it was probably, it was not only probably, it was a huge mistake to try to defend New York uh, because it's an archipelago surrounded by water and whoever controls the sea controls uh, the battle. But Washington believed he had no choice but to, to do so because he was ordered by the Continental Congress to do so. 
And also, it catches a kind of shred of his personality here that Washington began the war believing that battle was like a challenge to duel. If the enemy, in this case General Howe, presented himself on the battlefield, you were honor bound to confront him, to answer that. That was, I think, an adolescent or juvenile notion. It was, it was born out of a kind of chivalric Middle e medieval mentality, but it almost lost us the war because um, this was the one opportunity in the war that the British Army had to completely destroy, annihilate, or capture the entire Continental Army. And uh, I go into some detail in this battle, in this book, because, because it's the one significant moment where Great Britain had a chance to win the war. And Washington's leadership at this time, his resilience is impressive. He's not a good field commander. The troops he's commanding are not as capable as the British troops are, so it's difficult to know how much to blame him and how much to blame the, the, the militia-based army. Um, but there are multiple occasions when if, if Howe had wanted to, to win the war, he could have done it, and, um, and he resists doing it because he, Howe, is himself hoping that he can bloody the nose of the, of the American army and then negotiate an end to the war. He and his brother, Richard Howe, really don't think this war is a good idea. They're Whigs. The opportunity is, that is presented on multiple occasions to capture the entire army is, is lost. One of the most, the most uh, dramatic is when Washington takes the troops from Long Island across the East River at night under the cover of fog, uh, it's, you know, the, the great escape. But as a general, Washington's the only great general in American history, or maybe in all history, to lose a lot more battles than he wins. If you think about it, most of the great generals in history end up losers. Hannibal, Hannibal, uh, Napoleon, Rommel, Robert E. Lee, Washington lose most, loses most of his battles, but ends up a winner, in part because at some point after New York, he comes to the recognition that it's, a, it's simple but profound. He doesn't have to win the war. The British have to win the war. All he has to do is not lose it. That means not allow the Continental Army to be just completely destroyed. And it's that insight that carries him forward for the rest of the war, frustrated as he is throughout the war with the failure of the Congress and the states to give him the men and money he thinks he needs. When In the book, when I say the American Revolution, it's discontents. One of the discontents I'm referring to is the, unwill the, the patriotism in the overall colonies begins to fade almost before the ink on the declaration is, is dry. And there's a, not a dying of patriotism, but it recedes to the local level. An unwillingness to serve in the army unless it's the militia in your area or to give money to a, a, a federal army, which they would see then as a standing army, which is what they're supposedly fighting against. So that Washington, Hamilton, and others argue, Nathaniel Green argue, after the war is over, they could have won the war in two years if they had been given the forces they needed. 
And, and they were demographically, the United States capable of providing fielding an army of 80 to 100,000. Washington never had more than 10 to 12,000 um, regulars. So the, the discontent, as I'm referring to it here, is the, 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 the cause, as, which is, again, not just my term, it's the word they use. The cause is the passionate desire for independence. Yes, and, if, and it's a, a common commitment to defeat the British and gain independence. But a, commi- a commitment on the part of both the lower-income and upper-income Americans. I mean, bo- both the you know, politicians and the lawyers, but also the mechanics and the artisans and the uh, the uh, tavern keepers, right? I mean, it, it's... You you make a point of this in the book about how it's both a, a top and bottom thing, the cause. That's right. And the, what I'm doing in the book is suggesting that American historians, there's like seven or eight historiographic schools of thought over time. I won't try to specify, but they break down into two categories. Those historians who emphasize the coherence of the top-down leadership uh, in this war, uh, the writers of the pamphlets, and those who emphasize the role of the people on the ground, the bottom-up side of the war. I say it's obvious. Both of them are necessary. They're the words and the music of the American Revolution. Right. And the, the, the bottom side needs to be understood in a, in a way that I think most Americans don't yet, namely if you were living in a town or village in New Jersey or North Carolina, once the revolution was declared and someone would come by your house with a with a, a, something to sign, put your name on, you were committed to this particular cause. And if you didn't sign it, they would say, well, we'll be back in a week. And there might be a woman, might be a man, and they come back next week. And if you didn't sign it then – they would say, I'm afraid your name's going to be published in the paper as a person who's a traitor, and you're going to have to uh, think about leaving. And you're not going to be able to go to church. You're not going to be able to buy food because nobody will sell it to you. And, but I'll be back in another week to see if you've changed your mind. And they come back in another week, and eventually when he doesn't say yes, they say you've got to leave because we're burning your house down tomorrow. It's that kind of local influence that makes the war unwinnable for the British side because they can win a battle, but as soon as the army leaves, it's like a a boat moving through water and the waves come together over the wake. The Americans maintain control of the countryside throughout the war, Um, and um, uh, and it's at that local level that the militia are effective um, and it's, it's, a, it's the way in which the American Revolution is revolutionary in giving that control to people on the ground. And it, but that, mean, that means that many of those same people don't see their self-interest as anything larger than their immediate vicinity. Remember, most Americans were born, lived out their lives, and died, died within a three-day horse ride. They can't think nationally or continentally. So you get this this notion at the very beginning of American history, is government us or is government them? And by the end of the war, it's pretty clear government is them. 
any faraway source of political authority, even as far, even as close as Philadelphia or New York, is still them. Um, and the same hostility they had towards Parliament, they now have towards the federal government. So that the most famous speech in the first sentence of the most famous speech in American history is historically incorrect. Lincoln at Gettysburg said, four score and seven years ago, that is in 76, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of, of sovereign states provisionally united to win the war and then go their separate ways. So that the end of the war, what we have is something called the Articles of Confederation, which if you want to look for, it's a model for the Confederate States of America in 1860. Uh, and it, it, this is still the rioting and the and the discontents that are floating around in, in our own current political milieu. I mean, the question of us and them. I mean, that, that, that's right. That's what's going on in the lockdowns and uh, and and the and the uh, the riots in the summer of twenty twenty and the and the the riot on the steps of the Capitol on January sixth. If I mean, if George Washington were in charge, he would say, "If it happens again, gun them all down." I mean, so that Washington and Hamilton and, and Adams are all nationalists, and they think that this localism is misguided. Um, and eventually they're going to win it, win some victory in 1787. But that at the end of the war, um, people who are in control are people. Uh, I don't think they're like the Oath Boys or anything, but um, the very energy they're using against Parliament in England and the suspicion of any kind of power above them gets released against the elected officials after the war. And in that sense, you're right. Um, that they do resemble people who, well, who protest any form of federal authority. And I, I mean, I think the issue before us now has to do whether the election was won by Trump or not. And, and of course, that it's obvious that it wasn't. But it trades on the instinctive hostility and the conspiracy theories um, that were very much part of the time back then. Well, I mean, this is why so much of your book strikes me as so resonant in our current circumstances. I mean, talk a little bit about Washington at Valley Forge. He's, he's mm. constantly writing to the Continental Congress asking for, you know, give me an army or, you know, right. send money and food. And, 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 the, and his army is literally starving to death. It is. About uh, about uh, 2,000 American troops died in Valley Forge, uh, mostly of, malnut of uh, malnutrition or uh, exposure. Um, the first known casualty is actually an, um, an African-American soldier. He's face down in the tent. But Valley Forge is the nader. The, it, it, we, it, we all, the, the Continental Army almost goes out of existence, and it reflects the failure of the states. The Continental Congress itself attempts to get them the money, but the states are sovereign in, the, in this arrangement and simply say no. And the result is you get this movement in the officer class at, the, at Valley Forge. They start to see themselves as the few, the people, the, 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 the elite that will come together and stay with the commitment to the cause 
even though they're not getting paid, they're not getting fed, because they believe in it. And Hamilton and his close friend, a guy called John Lawrence, uh, are part of that. But that you, you, we can go and visit those huts now and, um, and recover that moment pretty well. I also feature as a profile in the book a woman called Catherine or Katie Green, who is the wife of Nathaniel Green, who becomes the angel of Valley Forge, wearing her nightgowns or her, her, her high-heeled shoes amongst the snow to visit the soldiers in their, in their encampment, singing them songs, reading them books, talking to them about, about poetry. She's a real heroine at this moment, and um, she, she's more comfortable in the presence of men, uh, men than women. A lot of women hate her because she happens to be super attractive, at that moment, I mean, she really is one of the major forces to maintain the the presence that they, they have to maintain as a, a military unit. There's a lot of people who resign. Some just run away. But at the end of the time, with the new recruits that come in after the winter, the, the army that went in was, was uh, 10,000. Uh, over 2,000 died. Some left. But the, the new recruits come in. And they go out as ten thousand again. Um, so they survived this this uh, this experience. Um, but I devote a whole chapter to that that moment because again, it's like an airburst in the night that shows you how much suffering is going on. And the heroes that I have coming out of the book um, are the the officers and the enlisted men of the Continental Army who stayed the course and um, and they never got well if they ever got a pension. It came very late in their lives. And some of them went back as, as paupers and were thrown in jail. So I empathize a lot with them and feature one of them in a profile uh, who embodies those values, a soldier from Maine named Martin. And um, I hope that when we're, I don't want to go back to look for heroes or villains, but in this moment, the closest thing to heroes are ordinary soldiers in the Continental Army. The cause that the is the Declaration of Independence, right? I mean, that a lot of that comes from... They start using, before they, the, the term, the common cause comes into existence after the passage of the Coercive Acts and the British occupation of Massachusetts, when the First Continental Congress says they had a common cause to come together, the other 12 colonies, to support their sister colony in Massachusetts. And they do that. Um, and it bec- and once you get to the summer of 76, common has been dropped and it just referred to as the cause. I would see the declaration as Jefferson's language to express the core values of the cause. And then in the indictment of George III, the reason why George III has himself, we don't have to declare independence in some sense because he's already declared his independence from us. And a lot of that same argument is 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 Thomas Paine's Common Sense, which is published in the That's right. winter of 1776. Right. And um, Paine has arrived only recently from England, and um, and he's got a letter from Benjamin Franklin saying he's, a, you know, he's, he has certain ability, certain precocious in, uh, abilities. And he, entered, he does what every journalist in America ever since has wanted to do, and hasn't done it nearly as effectively, to write one thing that changes history. And the, the common sense essentially 
declared that, that, it, that an island could not rule a continent and that the British monarchy was just a bunch of thieves and ruffians and that therefore all of this delay and this hope that they're going to eventually see the error of their ways needs to stop and we need to come together and recognize that we are a single people. And here's a foreigner coming and telling us this, um, but it's written in a language that's very accessible and it's a bestseller and it's posted on. And so every, every copy is, is read by multiple uh, readers It's because it's posted on taverns, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also something that changes the rationale for the war ideologically. We're not just rebelling because we're being our, our rights as British citizens have, are being violated. We are uh, rebelling because our natural rights as human beings are being violated. Once you move from British rights to natural rights, you've expanded the ideological and political universe greatly, and that's the, and that's where Jefferson displays in plain sight the the real agenda. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Right, and that's the Declaration. That's right. Comes out of both, it comes out of both Paine's common sense and, and Jefferson's Declaration. And that's the cause that, that uh, fades. What happens to the cause? I know this is beyond the, the uh, current volume in terms of your book, but, 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 but what happens to the cause in the when it comes to the writing of the constitution in 1787 the what there is really essentially a benevolent coup d'etat led by hamilton madison jay and they recruit washington and their basic argument is that a a, a, a sufficiently powerful federal government is not a repudiation of the values of the cause but a fulfillment of the values of the cause. Um, right. And in fact, if we don't create such a nation, that uh, we're going to be uh, the victim of European predators and we're just going to end up going to war with ourselves. And while I think it's a minority, in the Constitutional Convention, the people that are elected as delegates don't, aren't ac- don't accurately represent uh, the, the whole population. Half of them are veterans of the Continental Army who've experienced this in in an altitude that allows them to see the need to argue that an American nation fully empowered is itself a natural consequence or or logical consequence of the American Revolution. And the other side, who calls themselves anti-Federalists, say, no, it's a repudiation. But the Federalists win the argument. And it's ratified, and at least, it, and in some sense, you could see it's the second American Revolution, which is a delivery on the promise of the first. You end you end the book with uh, I can't tell you how much I admire this book. I mean, I'm, I'm learning a lot about not only America then, but America now. And the uh, you, mm-hmm. you you talk about the at, at the end you talk about the failure to uh, address the questions of slavery and Indian removal. Because we're not a nation, we're a a confederation of sovereign states, 
there can be no political place where those large tragedies can be can be put on the agenda. And especially on slavery, all the states south of the Chesapeake, with a possible exception of Virginia, are going to oppose any effort to restrict either the slave trade or slavery. And so there are great triumphs and there are great tragedies here. And the two great tragedies that could be ended, I think, if faced as a national government in, as early as the 1780s, before they, be, they become out of control, you can't do it because the, the government that is, exists is designed to be weak and designed to leave control in the hands of states rather than the nation itself. And what about the Civil War when when the poetic assurance of Lincoln that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not peril from the earth? But we never had a government of the people, by the people, or for the people. (laughs) Isn't that an implication that can be drawn from your book? Well, yes. I mean... And what you're saying is the Confederacy actually had a pretty strong argument in 1860. And, um, and Lincoln is reading the uh, American past through the promise of 76 rather than the political uh, uh, structure that exists at that time. Lincoln is really revitalizing the meaning of the Declaration to mean what it should have meant at the end of the war is somewhat recovered in the, in the Constitution, though the Constitution has to equivocate on the slavery issue. But Lincoln is going back and saying to our own that this is an ideal that was set up for us by Jefferson, and it's always going to be elusive, but we have to get as close to it as possible. And in the end, slavery is incompatible with the values of the revolution. But remember, even Lincoln isn't saying he's going to end slavery in the Deep South. He's only going to end it in the territories. And uh, But the South secedes on that very threat. And Lincoln himself has gathered together groups of uh, African-American leaders in, the, in 1862, uh, when the outcome of the war is not clear, but uh, to say, look, if we win, you all have to gather your people together because we're going to have to send you somewhere else. Um, back to Africa, or he's exploring a colony in Panama or Puerto Rico, and um, so that even even Jefferson, excuse me, even Lincoln, he believes that slavery is wrong, but he's not at all sure that blacks and whites can live as equals in the same society. But his Gettysburg address is to try to reinvigorate the cause. That's right. That's right. And to say, and it's the first time he says it. See, up until now, he's saying this is a war to preserve the Union. And now he's saying for the first time, that entails ending slavery. That's the first time he says that. And that, and, and so it, it redefines the, the meaning of the Civil War. And, uh, and that's a very big achievement. This is why your book is so resonant with the now. I mean, they... These discontents are storming the media yes. barricades today, right? right. Uh, I mean, in some sense, it's one of the reasons why I'm not totally pessimistic about our current condition, even though I have my moments. And um, uh, I mean, we've been here before, right? Now we've never had a demagogue elected president. No, the, the earlier demagogues, like in the in the 
the founding year, the one person they thought was a demagogue was Aaron Burr. But Burr, you know, compared to Donald Trump, is a, is is you know, yeah, a very intelligent man. And I think that there's certain. Un, it's awkward for a historian to say that our current condition is unprecedented because we live on precedent. But I do think it's precedented in the sense that we've. I don't think we face a civil war again. It, several books have recently come out uh, using that term. There's a crisis here. It's a crisis about whether we are, and I would not use the word democracy. I would use the word republic, which means the rule of law and a government based on a democratic foundation, but with a government that filters popular opinion through different layers of refinement. Um, But we have been here before, um, and, uh, uh, and I'm hopeful that we're going to come out of this in a way that allows us to continue to approach the goals of the Declaration. Well, that's what's so wonderful, really, about your book, Joe. And and that's why everybody ought to go out and read it. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with us today, Joseph Ellis, about his new book, The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents, 1773-1783. Thank you for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.